Thanks. John chapter 4, this evening will be in verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. God, we we are truly in awe of the power and the might that you do. But yet even more than being in awe of your power and might, we tremble at your word. We worship you in light of your word with awe and reverence. Your word is the very food that gives us life and sustains us and upholds us. And God, we ask and pray that as we hear this evening this story from your word about your son Jesus, that you would minister to our hearts these truths. You would take this word and apply it to our lives and that we would in a deeper, fuller, richer way worship you thank you jesus for the grace that you showed to this man so long ago that lives still in the pages of your text as an example for us and an indication of the grace that you even bestow to us your children lord we thank you and we pray that this text and hearing it would lead us to love you more And know you better when we leave here than we did when we came in, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. We remember the context. It's helpful to go over it, though, again and again and again, just so that we don't lose sight 
of what's going on and we don't want to have the tendency to segregate and compartmentalize texts from one another because there is importance to be had throughout as the flow goes. And so John had just recorded for us the story of the woman there at the well. You'll remember Jesus had to go through Samaria. And in going through Samaria, he went and met this woman there seated at the well. And you remember the story well by now that she was confused about this Jewish rabbi asking him for a drink of water and a conversation ensued that led him to the point where he confronted her with her sin in saying, go and call your husband to come here and meet me. And she said, I don't have a husband. Trying to obfuscate away from the clear fact that she was living in um, adultery or living in fornication there at the moment. And Jesus said, you're right, you didn't, you don't have a husband. You've had five and the dude you're with now is not your husband. And she says, oh, I think you're some kind of prophet. And he says, well, I'm a little more than that. I'm the Christ. And after, of course, my, that's an abbreviated exchange. But of course, at the end of that time, she is so cut to the quick, both with her own sin and yet has responded in faith and apparent repentance in Christ and trusting in him that she goes back to the town and tells everybody all about the wonderful things that Jesus has just done in speaking to her. And then he goes, or pardon me, then as she goes, she tells all these people and then they come down out of the town to come and see Jesus there by the well and hear for themselves the words of Jesus. And he stays there for two full days teaching them, instructing them, and leading them on in the way that he would have them to go. Now, one of the things that John is very good at doing is placing stories together in order to give us both comparison and contrast. And we already saw that, right, with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Well, this story is kind of similar. Let me show you why as we get into it. For verse 44, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Well, why? Why is this saying true? Well, Jesus had had this particular experience on several occasions. So if you want it real quick with me, turn to Luke. It's just the next book back. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And yeah, we'll, we'll just read through it. It's a little bit of a lengthy section, but you can endure. Verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up and read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now mark that. Here in the beginning, they're marveling at the words that are coming out of his mouth. Then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So they were marveling at his words, but now they're wanting him to perform miracles. Mark that. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Well, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They marveled at his words at the beginning. And then when he said these particular words that God is sovereign over whom he chooses to work with, when he chooses to work with many widows, but yet he only saved one and she wasn't even Jewish, but from the land of Sidon. There were many lepers in the nation of Israel, but Elisha was only healing one and he wasn't even a Jew, but he was one of the enemies from the nation of Syria. They were enraged at the words of Jesus. And here comes to us, here's a key for us as to why no prophet is without honor in his own hometown. And they drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill, which was where their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst and he went away. Interesting. They wanted to see a miracle and he performed one. And we see mob mentality going on on our television sets and on our mobile devices all over the country in these recent days. Do you think if a mob wanted to kill Jesus, they could have killed Jesus? Certainly. One man, they could have thrown him off the cliff. But Christ says, nope, and parts them like the Red Sea. Shows them a sign. But you see, it was his words that enraged them. And words will always enrage people more than actions. And Jesus testified of himself that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown because his words to them were offensive. His words were difficult to take because familiarity breeds contempt, right? They grew up with Jesus. They knew he was the perfect one, right? Never sinning, always doing what was right and always doing what was good. You can imagine that the whole town, especially his peer group, had issues with Jesus. But you see, it's one thing to have issues with somebody who's good and who behaves well. It's another thing when they turn around and use their words to call you on it. And that's what Jesus was doing there in his own hometown, was calling them on their own issues. And that's why a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown. But something else is important here too. Look with me, if you will, at part of the rest of this text, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen 
all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Now skip down to verse 48 as Jesus confronts the ruler who comes to him. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Interesting note. Jesus, in the story just previously with the woman at the well and all the rest of the Samaritans that he stayed there in the town for two days, didn't perform any miracles, at least reported miracles. Instead, we hear his words being spoken. And the townspeople at the end of that time say, we believe now not because of the words you have told us, but because we have heard for ourselves, not we have seen these miracles. Jesus goes and he speaks the words of life to these Samaritan people, and they repent and believe. And look what the people in his own home region want. Signs and wonders, miracles and the razzle-dazzle. And Jesus is saying the reason why he's not without or he doesn't have honor there is because they want something. They want flash. They want entertainment. They want pizzazz. Let's be honest. Jesus in this particular point in time is the pop culture icon of Israel. (laughs) Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Maybe some bad, maybe some good, but everyone wants to see him everyone wants something to take place if he were in our modern day everyone would want him on their show whether it was a talk show or a variety show or whatever it was everyone would be trying to get jesus on their particular entertainment platform they'd be telling him oh you need your own youtube channel and you need connected with these social media networks so that you can get the greatest exposure out there jesus and they would be pumping him in order to get him to be doing all of his stuff on these various platforms to get the biggest cultural attention they possibly could, right? And it's no different in Jesus's day. People are the same, right? Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And our desire to be entertained, our desire to have our interests tickled are always going to be there. And Jesus here, you see the contrast that John is giving us. Jesus is being contrasted as the miracle pop culture icon with the person who just says words and leads people to salvation. So the contrast is the people in Sychar and the people in Galilee. We could say the people in Sychar are more noble if we wanted to use a illustration from the book of Acts because they heard the word of God and searched it out and listened to it rather than seeking signs and wonders like the Jews seek according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 3. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done. Seeing, notice this, the signs. And they welcomed him. Welcoming is not the same as believing. Welcoming is not the same as believing. Welcoming just simply means they were glad he was there. And because, of course, they had seen the signs. And they were welcoming him in expectation that he was going to do more signs. He was going to do more wonders. He was going to do more of these amazing kind of things. But as we're going to look at as we go through the rest of this text, I want to say something. Signs and wonders are the bottom rung of the ladder of faith. Signs and wonders are the bottom rung on the ladder of faith. 
Jesus performed signs and wonders to validate his message and to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament. But that's the bottom rung of faith. That's the lowest common point of connection you can have with faith in Christ. And even that connection doesn't necessarily mean saving faith. All these people are coming out. They clearly believe works were done. They might even clearly believe Jesus is a prophet. They might even kind of have an inkling that he's the Christ, but it doesn't mean that they've been confronted with their sin, repented of their sin, and trusted in him as Lord and Savior. So you can see how they can have a faith, but it is woefully inferior to saving faith. This is why I say this is the very bottom rung of faith. And we'll see this particular man exhibiting that here in just a minute. But anyways... He had been doing miracles in Jerusalem. They had all seen him come. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. Now, let me give you here, pretend this is Israel. Okay? It's not proper shape, but it's close. Down here, you have the Dead Sea, right? And the Dead Sea is in the southern, very arid, very deserty part of the nation of Israel. Just to the west, up the mountain, you have Jerusalem. Okay? It's up the hill. This is why when you read in the Bible, they went up to Jerusalem. Any direction you go to Jerusalem, you have to go up to, especially if you're here in the Dead Sea region. When remember, Jesus went down. He went down here to the River Jordan, which is the river that fills the Dead Sea, in order to baptize because there was much water there. Then from there, he went over this way up through Samaria and then up north. And then you have the Sea of Galilee up here. Now, Cana is a little bit south and a little bit west from the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20 miles from the place where this guy is from, Capernaum, which is at the very tippity top of the Sea of Galilee, where the headwaters of the River Jordan flow into the Sea of Galilee. It's a major, major area. It's a major point on the road that the Romans had built from southern Israel up through Galilee and then on up through Samaria into what we would call modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Okay, So that's the region that we're looking at here. It's a very fertile region. It's a beautiful region, much unlike the southern portion of the nation of Israel, which is very arid and dry and wildernessy. But Jesus goes to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. Now, at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, just reading that like that, you think this guy, he's just at home, his son gets sick, and he's like, oh, dude, I'll go talk to Jesus, and like goes down the road and says, hey, Jesus, can you come over? This guy trekked for more than 20 miles to get to where Jesus was. That means what happened is this man had a very sick son. And this son was so sick, and he was caring for him, taking care. He was clearly wealthy, so he probably had the resources to pump all of the medical attention of that day into the health of his son, and he still wasn't getting any better. So, this man hears probably in a point of distraction, right? His servants come in, and, you know, he is so upset and 
so despondent about his son. One of them says something offhanded to kind of get his mind off of his son. Said, oh, hey, did you hear Jesus has come back into the Galilee region? Right? I mean, that's something that's just common what you talk about. As much as you'd say, oh, you hear the latest podcast or you see the latest show or you, you, the, the latest this or latest that. Right? It's water cooler kind of talk. Oh, did you hear Jesus came back? nobody's thinking this guy's going to pick his staff up and lace his sandals and hike for 20 miles to get to Jesus probably. But he does. He does. Desperation will drive you to the places where you would just not normally go. I've never walked 20 miles in my life. (laughs) I'm not sure walking from here to Orland, (laughs) other side of Orland probably is about 20 miles. I'm not sure what it would possibly take for me to be like, oh yeah, I got to get my boots on and get on over there to Orland and walk that far. I, I don't know what it would take. For this man, what it took was his son for to be this ill. And for him to have exhausted all of his other available resources. What it took was this man to think, I've heard Jesus do all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a chance he would do this for me. Now this is him taking that first step up on that rung of, or that ladder of faith. Believing there's a chance Jesus would or could do this for him. His son was ill. His son was at the point of death. I mean, I mean, this is, this is, I don't want to minimize it because this is some faith, right? Here, it might be the very last moments with his son. He might literally have the last hours here. And is he going to give up those precious last hours that he might have with this child? Or walk 20 miles to go try to talk to somebody who he's never met before. Who maybe possibly could do something. But you don't even know because he's going to be gone for at least four days. Two days there, two days back. That's tough. And it's his son. We don't know if it's his only son. We don't know the rest of the family makeup. We don't know anybody's name in this story. But we can certainly put ourselves in this situation, can't we? We can put ourselves in this situation of a sick child, a sick relative. And we've done everything we absolutely possibly can to the point of desperation. Even thinking, I might only have a couple of hours left with this individual. But there might be a chance if I go. And rather than spending the time I could here, maybe, maybe if I go, there'll be some kind of good outcome and result. He takes his step up on that ladder. So he goes to Jesus. He says to him, will you come down and heal my son? For he is at the point of death. Jesus looks at him and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not 
believe. Now, at first, that sounds harsh. But remember, this isn't any more harsh than what Jesus did with the woman at the well. She just came down to get some water. She just came down to fill up her pot and put it on her head and walk back home so that she could get through the rest of the day and cook and clean and whatever she needed the water to do. But she shows up and here's Jesus, and this is just some Jewish dude as far as she's concerned, and he says, will you give me a drink? She's like, what's your problem, dude? And he brings her to the place where he says to her, you are living in sin. That's harsh from a dude who she showed up just to get water and here he's sitting there, is sitting there and he brings her around to this place where he's confronting her with her sin. The audacity of Jesus. Who does he think he is interrupting this woman's day? She's just going about her business only to bring her to the point where he's going to say to her, you're living in sin, you're living in adultery, you're living in fornication. Who do you think you are? That's what Jesus said. And yet none of us come away from that story going, oh, Jesus was so mean. Especially after we hear the end of the story. This isn't any more harsh than that. I think Jesus is doing two things in saying this. The first thing he's doing is he's condemning the entire region. Okay, we've already seen verse 45, right? Jesus, when he went to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So Galilee was looking for Jesus to continue to do signs and wonders. And they weren't believing. They needed to see signs and wonders. And he was just one element of this entire region's lack of faith or infantile faith. And so Jesus, in saying this, and saying to this one person who's a leader in this particular area, is condemning the whole area for their misunderstanding of what he's doing there. That is number one that Jesus is doing. But number two, he is talking directly to this man as well, and he knows something about this man's heart. He's Jesus. He knows everybody's heart. But he knows something about this man's heart as well. Remember I said this is the first rung on faith's ladder. Words that are hard are effectual in Scripture. They're going to absolutely have an effect. There is no words of Scripture that are hard words. Well, there's no words of Scripture that... That won't, but especially the hard words will always be effectual. Now, the effect they might have might be negative. They might harden the person's heart, right? Pharaoh is a great example of that, right? God told Moses there at the burning bush that he's to go back and he's to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but he is not going to let the people go because God is going to harden his heart through the words that come via Moses. So those words that come via Moses, these warning, let my people go or plagues are going to come, was effectual. It effectu- the effect was it hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is exactly what God wanted to do. 
Because he wanted to bring it to the point at the very end where there was no other way that anybody could say anything other than God is the true and living God. None of the gods of Egypt, none of the powers of Egypt, none of the control of Egypt has any authority but only God himself. So God's word is effectual. It hardens. But there's a positive aspect too. God's word will work in the life of the person who is believing or has believed or is intended to believe by God. Those who are elect, those who are his. That effectual word will be something that softens their heart or cuts their heart, brings them to repentance or draws them out in encouragement, gives them a boost of faith so that they can move forward and do what they needed to do. And this man here in this moment, he said, or he hears from Jesus, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And that was the very fitting word that this man needed at this point, at this time, so that he would take that extra step up that ladder of faith. You see, it is all God's work. God is, he didn't know this guy anything. Jesus created all these people. Jesus gave this kid life. This kid who's sick exists at the will and pleasure of God. God doesn't owe him a healing. God doesn't owe him health. It's by grace that he's even breathing God's air at this very moment. It's by grace that he's even able to sweat a fever. God doesn't owe him any of this stuff. And this centurion leader, it's not centurion, pardon me, this Capernaum leader comes to Jesus. He bows down, he begs for his son to, that Jesus would come down and give him, uh, restore him to health. And he says to him, huh, you're not going to believe unless you see signs, huh? And the point is, you need to believe first. He's drawing out from that man the faith that the Holy Spirit has already placed there within him. I firmly believe that based upon the end of the story. Now, we don't know what the Lord is doing in his work, but there's something that's clear. The Lord is at work in his people whom he has, and we can be absolutely confident and assured that when we share the gospel, preach the gospel, say even very hard words, that God is doing a work. We might not know what that work is, but we know that he is doing a work. And so he says to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And here's how I know that's effectual. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. That's right. But listen, there's two mistakes that this guy still has. Number one, he believed Jesus had to be there physically. And number two, he believed that it had to happen before death. So... This man still has a misunderstanding of who Jesus is, even though that faith is beginning to blossom, even though he has stepped up onto that next rung on the ladder of faith, he still has this inferior faith that believes Jesus is required to travel 20 miles and to be there before the kid dies. So there's still an urgency. There's still a a haste within his voice saying, let's go down and do this. But Jesus looks at him and said, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and the exact right words. 
you see the great contrast here is the contrast between signs and wonders and the word of God. So many people in our day and age are wanting the signs and wonders, looking for the signs and wonders, looking for the ultra supernatural, when in fact the word of God are the very things that are the most supernatural and the greatest thing that we actually need as people. And when he hears the word of God, even though it's a hard word, the man believed. The man believed. The man believed. Now, what was the word? Jesus said, go, your son will live. We, we don't know if this man was Jewish. Seems like he probably might have been, but we don't know that for a fact. But in Isaiah 35, there's an important passage. Well, there's lots of important passages in Isaiah, but in Isaiah 35 particularly, it is prophetic about the time of the Messiah coming. And even though it speaks in a manner that might sound like a literal renewal of the land, it's actually speaking of the spiritual renewal of the nation of Israel. You'll see as we go. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense, he will come and save you. You see, this man here, he hears this word, go home, pardon me, go, your son will live. And he says these words to, let's be honest, this man with an anxious heart. He says, be strong, fear not anymore, behold your God. The eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame man will leap up like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, when the Lord comes and he says to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, I am your God. With vengeance and with recompense of God, he will come and save you. He is doing a work that is here now, Validated with these miracles prophetically in Isaiah chapter 35. And I believe doing that right here in this man's life. Here there's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, but even more so as he brings salvation and restoration to the nation of Israel through his saving work. And saving work only comes through faith. And here this man believed the word that Jesus spoke as he went on his way. Number one, can I say something here really quick? God oftentimes does not meet our expectation. God oftentimes doesn't meet our expectations. This man expected to go to Jesus to tell him to come and Jesus to go, oh yeah, let's go and come with him 20 miles away and then heal him before he died. That was the man's expectation. God oftentimes does not meet our expectations, but he always exceeds them. 
he always exceeds them. There's never a time. I mean, you can think back in your own lives. I can give you biblical examples, but think of your own life story where there's been times where you've been praying about a specific thing. You've been interceding about a specific thing. You have this specific request. You think it'll be met this way, and you're just yearning, you're praying, and then all of a sudden something comes and your prayer's answered, and you look back and you go, whoa, that was God. I didn't see that coming at all. And you're skipping and jumping and leaping and praising God like the guy in Acts chapter 2, right? And you're just like, whoa, or pardon me, chapter 3. And you're all excited about it. And you're like, man, that was totally a God thing. That was so the Lord. God oftentimes does not meet our expectations. And he instead exceeds them. Because he's, he doesn't need our expectations. In fact, our expectations, let's be honest, they're always so, so base level. <laughs> we can only think tiny, tiny, tiny little thoughts, even when we have this big, massive, universally grand God. And we are still thinking minuscule, tiny God thoughts. And it's the best we can do. <laughs> and and, and not, not to disparage us, we're doing the best we can. But we think these little tiny God thoughts and we pray these little tiny God prayers and then God shows up and invades life with his fullness and we're just blown away to the point of worship and going, praise you, God. Wow. You see, God does not meet our expectations, but he exceeds them. And that's exactly what happened with this guy to the point that I'm actually shocked when I read this. Verse 52 Pardon me, 51. When he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That's one o'clock p.m. So this tells you that this guy believed Jesus's words so much that he stopped somewhere and spent the night. His son was sick to the point of death. He was so desperate, he left his son, which might have been the very last moments of his life, in desperation to go and try to meet the guy who might actually bring some healing, finds the guy, the guy won't come back with him, but says, it's okay, he's going to be healed. And he is so confident in that word Jesus spoke, he's like, all right, let me go find an inn and go to bed tonight then. And he probably slept well. The evidence of faith is your actions, right? James 2 is so clear about that. You want to show me your faith by your words? I'll show you my faith by my works. You can see my faith. You can see it in action, right? You see it here quite clearly. You see, as it were, why, do you see now why I give this picture of this man climbing up a ladder of faith and this first rung is very base and low and it's about works and signs and wonders, but he steps up on it. But as Jesus brings him along and he begins to climb that ladder further and further, he gets to a point in a place where he is able to rest and confidently stand in that faith. Even though He wasn't absolutely full of the knowledge that his son was well. He was confident with spiritual knowledge that Jesus' word was truth. His spirit, pardon me, the Holy Spirit confirmed with his spirit, just like Romans 8 says, the Holy Spirit will. 
verse 53, the father knew that the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. And this was the second sign that Jesus had done when he came from Judah to Galilee. I want to close with this one last point. His faith grew when he heard these words again, when he heard that his son was alive, when he knew that it was all true, and he climbed up that ladder even more. But listen, faith is contagious. Faith leads to faith. Faith leads to faith in your own life, first of all, right? Now, I, I can look back and I can see places where God is faithful, 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 God is faithful. And it, it, it gives me strength and motivation and encourage. It allows me to be much more patient and cautious. It allows me to, to go forward when I think I need to go forward. And it, it gives me perspective that I didn't have before because my faith is so much stronger now 20 whatever odd years I'm into my walk with the Lord than I was, you know, eight years in or 13 years in or 20 years in. Now I'm in a place where I'm in my walk with the Lord where I do have more faith. And praise God, hopefully I'll have more 40 years from now. This is one of the reasons why older elder saints are so vital to the health and life of the church because we need their strong, resolute determined, long-standing faith to encourage our faith, which brings me to my second point about faith being contagious, is it's contagious to those around you as well. It's contagious in your own life and grows and grows, but it's contagious to those around you. I want to be around people who have a strong faith. When I'm around people who have a weak faith, it's discouraging to me. Because I'm like, come on, he's so much bigger, he's so much better. And I want to draw them along and I want to bring them along with me. And sometimes they're resistant. Because like I said, we got very small God thoughts oftentimes. And big God is scary, let's be honest. That's why we worship him with reverence and awe, reverence and fear sometimes. Because big God can be scary God, and he should be. We should hold him in that respect. Faith is very contagious, and so I want to be around people who have a strong, robust, vibrant faith. But also, I've just seen people who don't have any faith in God at all that I've been around in my lifetime, and there's something that attracts them to me, and probably attracts them to you too. And they can't put their finger on it. And sometimes they'll say something like, there's something different about you, right? There's been a, a several times I'm at Secret Trail sitting at the bar just by myself and somebody who happens to be around there has just come up to me and said, there's something, what, what it, what's your story? They don't know the right words to say. So they'll ask me and I'm able to sit there and talk with them and share with them. And, you know, I might not lead them to the Lord in that moment and maybe I will, I don't know. But when I'm sitting there and I'm talking to them, what they are experiencing is a contagious faith. They see my faith and confidence of God and it just exudes out. And I like this illustration. It's not the best, I'm sure. Maybe you guys can come up with a better one for me. But it's just like a sponge that's sitting there on the kitchen sink. 
you know, and it's just full, full, full of water because you've just been scrubbing and cleaning stuff. And you know that if you were to just touch that sponge, water's going to come oozing out because it is just super saturated with water. And that's what faith is like oftentimes. We're just so full of faith and you get bumped along the way and it just comes spilling out. And that is contagious to people. That's encouraging to people. People love that and are attracted to that. Especially those nearest and dearest to us, hopefully. He believed and his whole household believed. Now this man has brought on an incredible journey, isn't he? Here from the point of not having had really much of a faith, a a pop level faith, if you will, believing in the signs and wonders just like the entire rest of the Galilean region did. But God had other plans and Christ had an intention and a purpose to take this man and draw him along the way and to draw this faith out of him, to help him to climb up this ladder of faith so that he might not just have his son restored to physical health, but the entire household now given spiritual life. So there wasn't just one resurrection in this story. There was a household full of resurrection in this story. The word of God is more powerful than signs and wonders. The word of God is the very thing that gives, that sustains, that encourages and motivates life. And we can be so grateful that we have it. Amen. Father God, we love you. We thank you for the uh, amazing work of redemption that you do in our lives. And while we might not have had our son healed from the, some kind of ailment, you have still spoken a word to us in a timely matter, in a fitting moment, that was exactly the word we needed to bring us to life and to godliness, Lord. So we stand arm in arm with this man uh, here atop this ladder of faith, grateful that you have drawn us along the way by the power of your Holy Spirit and given to us that which we need for life and godliness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you, praise you, praise you in your name. Amen.